Father, we long to sit at your feet, not just by ourselves, but together as a community. We thank you for that chance this morning. Pray that you would show us your love and let us live even further into your love every day in praise of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been very grateful for our examinations of the Psalms over this summer, and today we close it out. Um, The work we've been doing has really emboldened me to go to the Psalms with whatever emotions I'm dealing with, you know, if they're not acceptable by social standards or if we find them confusing for ourselves. I love that the writers of the Psalms were loud enough and courageous enough to publish their works in a sense, and God accepted it and God guides us with it. And so when our emotions are confusing, it's good to lean on this wild mix of the heart cries of human beings mixed with the divine inspiration and leading of God so that we can be led by God. And now I know that these are kind of the main reasons that I came back to faith um, on my own in high school. My sophomore year of high school, life was getting pretty heavy, um, confusing, a bit depressing. But it was by the spirit and it was by the upbringing of my parents that I was kind of led back into a hope in the Bible. And I requested of my mom if I could have a Bible. The only one I had was a children's Bible with, you know, crayon coloring pictures in it. Um, But she was great and got me an NIV message parallel Bible. And I kind of wish I still had that format because it was really cool. And so I wound up in the Psalms inevitably And I saw the mess that was being expressed there, and I felt at home there. And it's that mess that was guiding me upward to God and keeps me coming back to him now, has been with me for many years. And so we'll get a taste of that today, some of the wild, deep, and shifting emotions that are brought to God and then are guided by him. I brought chip bag clips to clip down my pages today. (laughs) So let's get a feel for what's happening around Psalm 31. This is another psalm that was written by David. It's a psalm asking for help from God. The formal category for this kind of psalm would be an individual lament, and it fits really well with what I would have liked in high school. It's a specific situation that the worshiper brings to God and requests that they would be delivered out of it. So looking at the structure as a whole, verses 1 through 18 are a prayer, a request to God, and verses 19 to 24 is a set of praise. More specifically, the psalm begins with asking God, and then it goes into a reassurance with gratitude to God, but then it moves back into asking, back into thanksgiving, and ends with praise. And when I was thinking about it, I found it comforting that You can move back and forth when you pray to God, back and forth to thanksgiving and confidence, back into requesting. It's a natural flow of emotion, and it gives time for us to listen to our fears and remember the good things of God. So what's happening in this back and forth prayer of thanksgiving in this psalm? At the top of the psalm in verse 1 comes the thing that really is the message for today. It really makes this psalm unique. And what's the topic at hand? 
The worshiper says in this paraphrase, I'm coming to you, Lord, about this. Please don't let me be put to shame. It's also translated, don't let me be ashamed or humiliated or disgraced. And shame is mentioned twice in the psalm. And so our Book of Common Prayer translation that we use today used the word confusion. I saw that almost all of the translations we look to are using the word shame, and that's the way the Hebrew word is treated most of the time. And so I know getting set to talk and listen to a sermon about shame can set us off into having difficult reactions. Maybe it brings up bad memories or makes you just feel kind of skin crawly right now. But that's exactly why we're talking about it. And that's why the Bible brings it to us. So we can take the power out of it. We can untie that knot that's in our chests instead of just leaving it for later. So I do want to pray again that Jesus would give us his presence as we speak and as we move through this. So an example. I remember a time when I was about five, probably. You know, memories back then are a little iffy. But uh, I think I was five, and I was visiting the public school that I was about to join in. I was about to start attending there as a student. I was going to become independent and self-sufficient. So it was a big time. And I remember playing on the front lawn of, on the grass of this school. And it didn't take long before I heard a, a voice. Yeah, it felt like yelling at me, saying, get off the grass. Don't play on the grass. And I just thought, what? I had no category for that. I've got a whole lawn at home, and it's made for stomping on and falling in. It takes a beating. It cushions my falls. It can't be destroyed. It's, I never saw it as an ornament. And so then what happened? Uh, my face went red. I quickly got off the grass and sat on the sidewalk. And that's when the emotions and the thoughts started falling on me, saying like, oops, I messed up. I guess being on the grass is a problem. And I broke a rule that I didn't know about. And so that was me reacting to sort of what happened. But my thoughts developed further from that. Oh, man, like I made people mad. The world is more dangerous and unknown than I thought it was. I don't know if this whole school thing is going to be okay. I just want to be careful so I don't get yelled at anymore. I really want to be good and I really want to be liked. So yeah, you can tell that I'm expounding quite a lot on a really quick and simple moment of my life. So maybe it's becoming almost more of a parable. Um, but I felt like it was important to keep it light because <laughs> um, we all know what shame is. I don't need to tell you everything about it. But I wanted to start looking at some of the components that make up our experiences of shame. And so what is shame? We can be specific about it. It's a deeply painful feeling, believing that we're flawed or broken or wrong. It makes us unworthy of being loved. Something we've experienced or done or failed to do that makes us think we're unworthy of belonging. So it's believing we're fraud, broken, unlovable. And I am borrowing a bit from Brene Brown, the research and the great work and explanation she's done with this topic um, and the topic of vulnerability, I do recommend her to you. And defining such a big emotion as shame could feel foreign at first. I think it's hard to put concrete words onto the things that we feel so heavily. 
But what about guilt? Guilt is similar to shame, and they can get mixed up pretty easily. Where shame says, I am bad, guilt will say, I did something bad. Guilt focuses on behavior, but shame goes a level deeper and gets into our identity and the way we see ourselves. So when I first got off the grass in this story, I was thinking, I just learned a new rule. I learned it the hard way, and I don't want to break the rule again. So you can see that guilt is adaptive and it's helpful. It comes when we consider something we've done and we put it against our values or what God values. And so it will feel uncomfortable. And we should feel some guilt at times being sensitive people who care about others and about God. But the thing about guilt is that when you feel it, there's a plan, there's a solution, there's forgiveness. Not so with shame. Shame is not productive and shame doesn't make change in our lives. Shame comes in second in that story and it starts to skew my view of self and reality. When I was saying maybe the world is more dangerous than I figured, I don't know if this is going to be okay. I need to second guess myself and I want to be good. I want to be liked. And in the world around us, shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And it's actually likely to drive us deeper into destructive behavior because it focuses on ourselves and it focuses on rejection. For example, in depressed moments, we could feel like we need to isolate. I'm not worth it. People don't want to be around me. And the depression worsens the more we stay by ourselves. Or if shame is telling you that everybody hates you, doesn't want to be around you, then you'll likely reject other people in return. Feeling rejected can lead you to lash out. And so if we always give ourselves these messages of being unlovable, we'll believe it. And we're going to act accordingly. And it moves us in a direction away from God because it's not the truth after all. God says that we're lovable and we are beloved. And the psalm will bring us into that space. Shame only does, does only tear us apart. And so day to day, part of the human condition is that shame is this invisible motivator. It comes fast to us and we don't even know it. It can tell you things along the lines of, I'm never good enough, or who do you think you are? A simple example would be worrying about what people think or worry about if we can be truly loved, if people only really knew who I was. If you're starting a new job and worrying if you'll be liked or if you'll be effective, you worry about saying something dumb when you're speaking in front of a bunch of people. Yes, I worked through that this week. Fear of the future might actually be a fear of shame. A business decision or a job decision that you worry might not work out meeting new people, you want them to like you, or to have to extend yourself in a leadership position and to hope that it works out well. Shame will tell us day-to-day -day things too of your outfit is bad or your body is not right. And this comes with the fall of Genesis 3, doesn't it? It's great how the writer addresses shame so directly in that story. Immediately after Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to eat, and they go their own way. First thing they do 
their eyes are opened and they make coverings for themselves. One chapter before it says, they were, made, they were naked and felt no shame. And so then when God appears after they eat the fruit, they're hiding from him. He cries out, where are you? They hide because of their nakedness that they tried to cover over. They wanted to hide and not show all of themselves because they were ashamed. And a common way of translating this dynamic would be to say that they hid their faces from God. They wanted to have control over what was seen, what was accepted, or what was rejected. They wanted to negotiate their relationship with God, but God never asked this of them, and he never intended shame to be on this earth. So we see clearly that the worshiper today longs to be delivered from shame. And while they are in this space, they have to grapple with their worries that they have about other people. In the middle section of verses 9 to 13, the worshiper is confronting the depths of their troubles. They say that their eyes grow weak with sorrow, their body is overtaken by grief, their life is consumed by anguish, and they start to tally up the years that this has been going on, which is so tempting for us to do sometimes, isn't it? And because of all this, people dread being around them and they run away. And other people in the worshiper's life forget about them altogether. The worshiper calls themselves broken pottery. They're useless, forgettable, worth throwing away. This is shame talking, isn't it? There's a third set of people who haven't forgotten the worshiper, but are actually plotting hurtful things against them. And maybe this was literally true, as we know it was with King David sometimes. But often, this is another way that shame can manifest for us. The world of psychology would call it a cognitive distortion. It's a skewed view of reality, assuming without any evidence that people are out to get you. These feelings are happening to more people than you might think. Part of shame is keeping these thoughts and these feelings secret, and that's what gives it its power. Loneliness is an epidemic in our country. You might have heard about the new CDC warnings about loneliness. They were saying that it's the feeling of being alone, regardless of the amount of social contact in your life. And I do remember that clearly in those high school days, being surrounded by 3,000 students at my big Georgia high school every day, I still felt lonely. Loneliness is the feeling of being alone or disconnected from others. It's like you don't have meaningful, close relationships or belonging. Social isolation and loneliness have been linked to an increased risk of heart disease and stroke, type 2 diabetes, and in the world of mental health, depression and anxiety, addiction, suicidality, self-harm. Our bodies and our minds and our life circumstances are all connected, aren't they? And this is not the way it should be. These aren't the results that we should be seeing. The report mentions vulnerable populations like immigrants, LGBTQ populations, minorities, low-income adults, young adults, older adults, and people living alone, people with chronic diseases or disabilities. And the church has a mission, don't we? To those we know and to those we don't know, and maybe we don't know them because they've been isolating. So the fall of Genesis 3 has broken us and broken things around us. And that sounds familiar, but what's the solution? 
How can we come back to God and avoid the experience and the belief and shame and the effects of loneliness that are around us? Verse five today might've sounded familiar. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is prayed by Jesus on the cross in Luke 23. Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus took on our sins on the cross, but he also took our shame. The wrong things we have done are gone. And anything that said that we were created wrong or unlovable is also gone. Reasons for shame are destroyed. He suffered the actual rejection that we fear. Hebrews chapter four brings this home saying that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses and also the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. And that joy is you. That joy is me and the church. So no longer can we listen to shame and say that I'm wrong or bad or unlovable. God so loved us that he created us, pursues us. He died and rose again to bring us back to him. Remember our definition that shame is a deeply painful feeling of feeling unworthy of being loved. Our sin and wanting to live away from God got in the way of our relationship with God, but he didn't let it end there. He would not let you be unworthy of love. He chased after you at the greatest cost to tell you that you were never truly broken or flawed or lost. So with the cross is expressed this, uncovenant, this covenantal, unending, unconditional love of God and there's some beautiful covenant language in this psalm that could sneak past us. In verse two, the worshiper calls on God's righteousness to deliver them. This righteousness recalls the commitment that God has made to save his people in the past. In verse four, the words, for your name's sake, refer back to the Exodus deliverance that God chose for his people. And the word, word redeem recalls God redeeming his people out of slavery and exodus. And so the psalmist is calling on these to be delivered now. The worshiper reassures themselves in verse 16, let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. This phrase is a loaded phrase. It comes from the blessing that was given to Aaron, the priest to give to the people of Israel and would have been heard regularly during worship. So the image from the priest is that God would look on you with a full, shining, smiling face. His approval and his joy would be on you with his full presence and his full attention. Remember the hiding face of Adam and Eve. God makes his face always to shine on us, always with love and approval and delight. And by the cross, we are connected to this covenant language that David is using today. God has pursued us and we have run to him. His love will never be taken from us. And this is the definition of covenant. This is the reason that shame is gone. We will have to wrestle with it in this life, but we look forward to the time when every tear will be wiped away. So where do we run to if we want to run from shame? We run toward a God who delights in us. Did you know that God delights in you? It's not my natural posture and I forget often. 
even when I was putting together this section, I felt some sort of internal resistance that it was too good to be true, or maybe I wanted to stay in control. But Father Tim brought to us last week that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God is present with us always as our companion. We are knit together, made uniquely to be yourself, and he has imagined you. We as a church are God's workmanship to do good works that he has prepared for us. We are his masterpiece. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. This is the only time in the Bible that God is described as singing and he's singing over you. So when worries, feelings of shame come, remember the larger, unfamiliar maybe, the larger reality that we live in, that we are wanted and created and delighted in. Run to the delight of God and toward his face that shines on us. Remember the cross of the the anchor of this new life that we live in love. And shame will give nothing good to you and is not the reality that we live in anymore. So let's take a moment to bow our heads, breathe slowly and know the presence of a God who delights in you. Lord, pull us out of the confusing depths of shame when they come to us. Your delight feels foreign to us and shame feels more real. But show us your face that shines on us always. Amen.